Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close, and I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. My guest today on Conversation with Close is a young old friend, uh, Joshua J. I met Josh when he was uh, uh, quite young at uh, a uh, convention in Canton, Ohio, uh, the Battle of the Magicians. Our paths crossed several times while he was still in his teens, and uh, we've stayed in contact and become uh, very good friends over the years. We share a number of interests, an interest in memorized deck and an interest in all kinds of facets of magic, a love for books. And uh, he has a new book. Speaking of books, he has a new book coming out. Uh, it's called How Magicians Think. And we will spend most of our time talking about that because there are all kinds of topics that uh, we can uh, discuss from that book. So, Josh Jay, thank you so much for joining me on the uh, podcast. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm a fan of your newsletter. I watch with great anticipation all the other interviews. And um, and let me just say, not to puff up the interviewer here, that your books, which came out around the first times that I was meeting you and you were touring a lot in the Midwest where I'm from were foundational to my understanding of magic and the way you write about magic and construct magic. I think your fingerprint is all over my work. So I'm not sure that's a good thing, but, uh, there you are. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. I, uh, it's always nice to hear when, uh, when you were just a kid, um, your dad, who was not a professional magician, he was a dentist, but, uh, he, uh, really did you a great favor by instilling in you the idea that if you're going to do magic as a business, then you need to understand the business side of it. And uh, he sort of made you be responsible for keeping track of the funds that came in and how they were spent and things like that. Yeah. I had this Mr. Miyagi moment um, in the week or weeks after he passed, which were obviously terrible weeks where from the time I was seven years old, he would always have me do bookkeeping, set money aside for investing in new props. And we're talking, you know, $20 for a kid's birthday party here and there. So it was sort of like all a joke. And I would roll my eyes that we were running this business. And then all of a sudden, when he wasn't there to look over my shoulder, if this moment kicks in and you realize all oh, these lessons are so important that he left me with. And um, I wasn't panicked about running a magic business. So, um, I guess uh, precocious, I guess, is a good word to describe, uh, your enthusiasm toward magic. Uh, a lot of people, uh, some people may not know that you wrote a book when you were quite young, uh, 14, I guess, The Magic Atlas. Oh, 16, 16, 16 17. Sorry. Yeah. Something it's, like that. Okay. Sorry about that. Got you, got you too young. And, you know, there are, of course, trade-offs. You know, people look at that and go, well, what can this kid know at 16? And as we were joking a moment ago, that's what everybody said about Mozart. So let's not get too, let's not beat up youth too much because they can know more than you think they do. But, uh, but whether, you know, despite the pros and cons of writing a book that young, it did provide an introduction, uh, that allowed you to go around the world and, 
do some lectures and meet people. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we can really unpack this and and chat about it. It's a it's an interesting topic. I mean, I think speaking frankly, I was my ambition certainly exceeded my knowledge and expertise at the time, and that's that's regrettable. And I look back on that book. I mean, I'm I look back at everything I've done, and I I have you know a million things I would do differently. I think that's part of putting anything out. But yeah, I mean, it, it came out too soon. It's not written particularly well. There are missed credits inside. And I regret an awful lot of putting out a book so young. But it, it's hard to be completely down on, on decisions. I mean, everybody has regrets like that. And, and that book allowed me to travel the world and establish a name and, and be on some big stages. And, and that helped me get a stage act together that, that you know, is essentially part of the the wave I'm still trying to ride and and be on. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because what matters to you when you're that age is is making a mark and feeling like you have something to offer and and you know you just wish you could. I could tell the people I see doing this now that come to me as a gatekeeper in the magic community and are like, I want to make ten downloads with you and I do a book deal and and be on your stage and and you just I can see myself in that. And you just want to say, slow down. It's all going to happen and it's going to be great. It just doesn't all have napping this year. Sure. Sure. Um, you also did something, uh, in that time. Uh, I, I think you beat my record as the longest running columnist for magic magazine. Uh, I was doing reviews, but you were doing the tricks column and, uh, I can't imagine the work that was involved in doing, you did what that 10, 11 years, more than me. I did 12 years, 12 years. years. Yeah. yeah. And I actually, funny enough that you bring that off. We're just signing off on the last parts of there's going to be a kind of a collaboration between magic magazine and vanishing Inc. We're going to release the full talk about tricks columns because you know, there was a, a tremendous amount of material that would end up being quite significant as we look back early material from Danny Garcia and Ossie Wind and late material from Brother Hammond and uh, great tricks that are hidden in there from Darwin Ortiz and Jeff McBride and Paul Harris. And I mean, you know, there's significant stuff in there that's just hidden away and buried in those pages. And that's all going to be reprinted. So it's been fun to revisit that. And oh, similar, that's great. Similar vibes to, to the Magic Atlas, you know, um, just I did it very young and I wasn't so young when I stopped doing it. I think it was 2012 or something when we stopped. But um yeah, it's a great time. And I'll tell you something. And this is this is interesting. It's kind of in a parallel lane to a lot of the stuff you talk about in the worker series. And that is what a gift, what a gift it was to have to sit and describe between five and eight tricks a month for 12 years, not that I used all those tricks, but like to have to dissect magic and look at it from a skeletal level, you get, you get pretty good at understanding the underpinnings of magic tricks. And, you know, you don't get that same understanding just by performing every night. For example, sure. really well-known magicians who were workers all the time they would send in a, you know I, I would go after the good stuff right and i'd get a great trick from a great worker but then i'm i'm writing it up line by line and i i would go back and i would say hey look at one point you got the four aces on the table and the decks on the table and you pick up the deck 
to square the aces against it and set the back deck back down? Like, why do you put the deck down in the first place if you're just going to? And the answer is always, well, I've just always done it that way, but I never thought about it. I guess you're right. That wasn't worked out in performance. That took sitting with, you know, a computer and actually going through line by line, move by move to understand what can really be cut out. Or we've all done this if we've ever written up our stuff. You know the word salad that is most magicians' presentation. <laughs> and and I don't fault them. I mean, when I write down the stuff, I mean, you know this in particular because it's a part of the process for Fool Us. You have to write down everything you say. And for performers to write down all the stuff they say, you can look at it and go, well, two-thirds of this is crap. We can cut this. But you don't know that until you write it down. Until and you so, put it on a piece of paper. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I'm very grateful because I got to look through the eyes of every great performer of that era and also a lot of average and, and subpar tricks that I could look at on a screen and go, this is foundationally flawed, and I need to figure out why that is and see if we can fix it, you know? There is nothing more uh, useful for your own personal edification than trying to teach something to somebody else. Yeah. And basically, uh, even though the column isn't a teaching column, it, it is a column where you have to explain things in such a way that somebody reading it's going to understand it, which means you have to understand it yourself. Um, I think, you know, you were certainly the right guy for that job, I think, because uh, you were doing a lot of traveling. You were meeting a lot of people that guys of, you know, I'm two generations older than you are at least. Um Oh, God, more than that. Three generations older than you. And so consequently, you know, if that column was in my hands, I wasn't going to be able I wouldn't be able to get out there and and see all the people I needed to see to get the stuff I needed to see. Uh, and it, you're, go ahead. It, it was it was really fun in that sense, because it was at exactly the time I was jet setting everywhere. A period of time I was working all these conventions. Then I was doing my shows and. Then I was doing these book tours, which we're going to talk about, you know, this book tour coming up. But whatever the reason, I was out in it and I was meeting all these people. And also, you're right. I was of an age where, you know, <clears throat> all these people, Kaylin Morelli and all, all of these people who are roughly in my age range, I was meeting on tour. They were sending me tricks. And so, you know, a lot of these early contributors were people who now are are doing great things. Yeah, it's uh, and I'm delighted that uh, they'll all be reprinted because that will be quite a valuable resource. If people know you uh, currently, uh, contemporaneously, it's uh, probably because of your company, Vanishing Inc., which you run with uh, Andy Gladwin. Uh, you guys are a great duo. Uh, one of the reasons I am a big fan of Vanishing Inc. is its emphasis on books which is not something that is a popular sell to youngish guys, but is such an important part of uh, becoming a good magician, I think. Yeah, so you hit it on the head. I mean, uh, the best decision I've ever made and the luckiest thing I've ever done is end up being best friends and partners with Andy Gladwin. I mean, he's he is a remarkable guy, and he... He has such complementary skill sets to me that we just we do work really well together, um, and so I'm lucky in that sense. And yeah, we've here's something interesting. I mean, we've been in business now 12 years, Vanishing Inc., and 
we have never had a fight. We disagree a hundred times every day and we talk on the phone three or four times, but we've never had a cross word for each other because neither of us really operate like that. And I mean, that it is such evidence that you can have a long-term friendship and business partnership. First of all, with people, your friends, what you can mix business and, and pleasure, at least we could. And you can get through things without ever name calling or accusing or, or getting upset. And I mean, I think that's a great testament to, to Andy and everything that he brings, but yeah, I mean, from the get go, very simple sort of ethos at vanishing Inc., which is we want to run the magic shop that we would want to shop at. Yeah. I think that's great. We're both book guys. I mean, I'm sitting in front of my, my library. Um, we're book guys, so we spend most of our time doing books. And it's a great sacrifice, right? I mean, we, we could be much bigger in terms of bottom line if we just made the simple decision, let's put books aside for two years and just sell a lot of shit. Let's just yeah. sell a lot of stuff because we have the marketing team and the power now to do that. But that's not of interest to, to me or to Andy. We, we take great pride in the books we publish and we love the process of helping authors get there. So. You know, and and maybe this is a tangent worth going on. I don't know, but I am I am sort of surprised at the Emperor's New Clothes style lie that we are all constantly telling ourselves in this industry. And I think I'm sort of well positioned to say this because now Andy and I are responsible for selling an awful lot of the magic that gets sold. But let's be honest, most of the books that magicians publish most of the tricks that they're buying and selling are not getting performed. I mean, that's just, you can do some simple math and think about how many magic tricks are described just in the 1000 or so books here, let alone the the 3000 over there. And there's just not enough magicians in the world to be doing all of these tricks. So let's speak about it. Truly truth bomb honesty. What is this about? I think most magic books are read and consumed so that people can see how other magicians they admire think. And I'm not ashamed to say that's why I read magic books. I mean, I just read John Carney's new book, which he was on here promoting, and I didn't read anything with cards or coins in hand. And I'm not ashamed to say that. Like, I'm just not right now in a position to to need that material in my life. I hope I can get back to where I have the time to do it. But I was so excited to just see what John's up to, to see what he's thinking about, to see how he solves these classic plots and see how he's thinking. And I contend that you can learn an awful lot and get great value out of a magic book just by sitting down and reading how other people are thinking. But I don't think there's a whole lot of people, and I'm not trying to pick on John here. His book's wonderful. I don't think there's a whole lot of people reading his book and learning the tricks out of it. I hope I'm wrong. I hope there are a lot but I don't think that's, in my experience, that's the way it works for a lot of magic books. I think that most people who buy tricks put them in a drawer eventually. Yeah. And I think that most people who consume magic are amateurs. And and these are facts that we don't talk about because it feels guilty. But I guess I'm past the guilt of it. Like, I don't see the problem with the fact that 99% of the books on that shelf I don't do a single trick out of. But I'm studying how these people think and trying to learn something between the lines. And and you're and you know where else this comes into play, this exact thing, is in lectures. Now, lectures are something I've given a great deal of thought because I love doing them. I mean, I really love 
speaking about the craft and, and maybe that'll transition into to this book that I wrote because I kind of take it as my goal to start speaking about the craft to layman, not how it works, of course, but just start helping people with improve their magical fluency, so to speak. But I think lecturing is something that most magicians overwhelmingly get wrong. And I mean, I did too for a long period of time, because I think what most people think is that they're there to teach magic for two hours. I don't think you're there to teach me. I don't think a lecture with 40, 50 people in the audience with bad visibility is really the place to be teaching passes, side steals, palm. I mean, these are not great settings to be teaching intricate magic. Yes, yes. Well, I think in, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that when I first started lecturing back when the first workers book came out in the 1990. Uh, Chuck Fain watched one of my lectures and said, you're really, uh, you're not happy about what you just did, are you? And I said, no, I'm not. He says, you want to know what you're doing wrong? And I said, yes. He says, you're trying to teach. Don't teach. Demonstrate and explain. Yes, that's it. That's exactly it. Demonstrate and explain. For the same reason, though, right? Because the people watching, I, I've I've come to make peace with this. If I've got 50 people in the audience at a magic lecture, truly 45 of them are never going to do anything that I teach. And that's not just me. That's Tommy Wonder. That's whoever's there. 45 of them. And that doesn't make them bad. I think that's the difference is I I hope that people listening to this don't think I'm saying 45 are talentless. No, it means 45. And I count myself as one of those 45 are there to hear how you think, how you solve problems, how you got around this, the way you approach palming, the way you got around the final loads if you don't have a table. or That's what you're, what you're trying to do is inspire and demonstrate. And then if people, if you can get them excited about the trick, any trick worth putting in your repertoire is worth more than 10 minutes that you can dedicate to it at a lecture. Exactly. They got to buy the notes or see you afterward to learn it or put in the time. And I think that the sooner we can, as magicians, can start calling it that, the better. Because I actually think I've helped a lot of magicians with their lecture. And my advice, almost like a prediction, like without even seeing it, this is what I'm going to tell you when you're done. I put it here. And the advice is don't overexplain things. You know, I know a lot of magicians who go, okay, we've got two hours. I hope to cover three things with you, but I'm going to cover them in great deal. That's such a mistake. <laughs> it's such a mistake because you don't know that those three things are going to be of interest to the people who are watching and you're going to get so lost in the details that you're going to miss the opportunity to inspire and demo and cover your thinking on something. And anybody who really wants to learn some complex routine that truly takes an hour to describe, you can't learn it in an hour. Anyway, you got to learn it in 40 hours. You right, know? right. This is why over the, you know, the past few years, I've become so enamored with the small workshop, uh, approach to uh, live interaction with people uh, simply because yes you know I used to do the joke about what's a what's a you know a, a magic uh, club audience you know it's you know in terms of like if it was a violin master class if you remember that it's the thing where there's a, there's two trombone players and a clown you know so <laughs> right. it's 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 really a difficult thing to do so let let's pivot on this and talk about this new book. I think, I think that this is a book, and you can correct me, this is a book born of some degree of frustration about how magic is accepted by the average 
spectator in the world. Um, and I believe you've sort of hit a point that all of us get to where you say these, the people who you hit at a cocktail party or whatever, and they just blow it off without any sense of what it's actually involved in the process. So the, the book is called uh, How Magicians Think. Um, to be more accurate, it should be called How Some Magicians Think, How, the, how Good Magicians Think. But yeah. uh, how, how Magicians Think is catchier. And uh, this, the, uh, the process is simply uh, each chapter answers a question, a question that uh, was posed to you by people that you've encountered in your performances. I, I think of it almost as it's the magic version of a music appreciation book. That's exactly. I mean, truly, when you pitch books to major publishers in the pitch document, there is a an absolutely industry standard part where you have to say, and I'm told it's the same in pitching movies and TV shows, where you have to say it's the blank of blank or it's blank plus blank. It's Shark Tank plus a magic special. Right. That's that's something or, you know, it's uh, it's um, what's big trick energy is it's such a good example of this. It's it's uh. It's a prank show. What's that called? Um, impractical Jokers meets Street Magic. That, that's mm-hmm. I guarantee you. That's how that was sold. Guaranteed. Sure. Um, and I said it's David Byrne's How Music Works for Magic. Yeah. I read this book by David Byrne, How Music Works, and it's a beautiful book. It's it's a worthwhile read for anybody who loves magic, whether or not you like the Talking Heads. And it's his love letter to music. It's you know here's this great musical artist, and he's extolling the praises of people he thinks are unsung. He's explaining the music industry, how an album gets made and and why even if you have a hit record, it doesn't mean much in the music industry and so on and so on and so on. And he, and he really enlightens you as to what's going on behind the curtain, how they make the meat, so to speak. And I wanted to do that for magic. There is um, a tightrope that has to be uh, walked when you, tackle a book like this uh the difference between magic and music or art uh dance is i can explain music to you and i can go into some quite like let's talk about jazz for a minute i could talk about jazz to you and go into quite some detail about harmonic construction of tunes and how players improvise over the chord changes and i can give you like this is inside baseball information about jazz and having that information does not destroy the enjoyment of listening to jazz, knowing exactly how it's put together and how it works, but magic doesn't work that way. So you're on that tightrope of trying to explain what you want to explain without ruining it by explaining too much. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I actually had, far less fear about that issue than something else you mentioned as you were describing it, which is inside baseball. That turned out to be a much bigger problem. So what I mean by that is like, I've kind of made peace with the idea that there is, this is not a good term for it, but artful exposure. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like beautifully telling somebody how a trick works and spoiling it. That's not really what I mean. I'm talking about, I believe that it's almost entirely to magic's net net benefit 
to give people insider's information on how hard we work and how hard we apply ourselves to our craft. I think that the the perception is that that's not very well known. So we've got a lot of work to do. The hard part, the part that involved a lot of rewriting, cutting out about a third of, of the book, which I always intended to do. I overwrote it by uh, about a third, almost half of, of what I promised to bring the book in at and sort of said, here's all of it. You tell me what's too much and where your interest lies. The problem was the inside baseball thing, because I never want to be so in the weeds that people are like, I just don't care. You know what I mean? And right. and some of the things I'm fascinated by, the, the, the neuroscientific aspects of magic and the underpinnings of misdirection, people just don't care. Um, yeah. Layman, that is. So, you know, some of that writing, I think that was pretty decent. Will someday rear its head maybe in a, a four magicians book, but um yeah, that was the line. That that line was the harder one to dance. I see. You you say something right uh, early on. I I've gone through and highlighted a bunch of things, um, and I think this statement is is really the the biggest downfall for magic in terms of being able to get a foothold in terms of being respected for what we do. And your the quote is the problem is that good magic, I mean world class magic, is hard to come by. Most of us have rarely seen magic of that caliber. And you say, I hope someday you will. Uh, the good news, of course, is that during the course of your book, you do mention the magicians that were your favorites, and there is video available so people can at least watch that and have some idea what you're talking about. But uh, it certainly is difficult. And you also go on to say that, you know, the best magic is the combination of somebody who's a really great magician and an audience who is prepared to handle what's about to be offered to them without thinking that it's puzzles to be worked out, to try to see it as the kind of emotional theater experience that magic, good magic can be. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, first of all, what strikes me is how truly, and it's just a word, you know, this isn't lip service, but imagine the opportunity here, the opportunity we've got. I say we as magicians, because if you go into a bookstore, I was in a bookstore yesterday, there is a whole section on art criticism and performing arts. There's a whole section of books that you can buy. John Cleese on comedy and great art critics on how to watch, uh, how to go to a museum and interpret art, how to listen to music, music biographies. There really isn't anything like that for magic. There is no agreed upon way to view a magic show and talk about it with fluency. And I would actually say you're, you're an interesting person to be sitting across the virtual table from because Fool Us is also in its own lane making a really good play at improving people's magical fluency. Fool Us format forces us, us meaning the viewers, not magicians, viewers, to look at magic and go, okay, we can watch a magic trick, but we can also listen to people talk about the underpinnings of it and see things that aren't apparent to us to improve the way that we talk about magicians, the way that you can talk about five recording artists. You know, the, it's that old adage that all magicians sort of have a talking point. You know, if you see a bad concert, you don't come home and go, I hate music. You just say, I hate that musician. Right. But you right. see a bad magician and you just think all oh, magic is bad. We are treated in magic as if we're interchangeable. So this book 
is an opportunity to help people appreciate magic and magicians. And to that end, I have two things to say. Joe Posnanski, he's this really well-known, best-selling author uh, on his baseball uh, critic and writer. And he wrote the book on Houdini a few years ago. And he's become a friend. And I said to him, like, you have gone down this road before, book deal stuff. What's your advice for writing this book? I feel very overwhelmed. And he said, here's some advice I got that I followed. He said, figure out what your book is about. Distill it down to one sentence and then write that sentence down and tape it to your monitor and stare at that sentence every time you write a page, a paragraph, and anytime you're stuck, stare at that sentence. And if what you're writing doesn't get you closer to that sentence, it can't stay in. Right. And I figured out that my sentence was, I want to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. And oh my God, with that as my North Star at the top of my monitor, yeah. every sentence in this book is informed by deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. And to that end, I think Fool Us goes a long way to doing that. I think Fool Us is doing some real good in that department. Well, that's, uh, I'm glad you think that. I mean, it's, it's such a different show, but it does have one thing, um, going for it. And, you know, all the people who've been on the show, uh, you've been on, you've been on twice. Uh, Andy's been on twice. You, you appreciate that the people responsible for that show have the magicians at heart. They have the yeah. magicians best interest at heart. All we want is for the performers to shine. We want you to be able to give the best, you know, performance you can, uh, uh, you know, and, and enhance you and your brand and what have you. So, you know, we, we really, all of us work real hard to try to achieve that. Yeah. On no, that. Even with it, even with the goofy format that it has with the, you know, having to have the, um, but as you say, the fooling part of it is part of that pitch where there were two blanks in the thing you know it's yeah I, it's a contest show meets the masked magician and i totally get why why it's there and in the interest of full honesty and i, I mean I, you've expressed things like this to me tellers express things like this to me but i don't think anybody involved in the show is crazy about that element and i don't think that element's great for magic um i get why it has to be there i get that we're not in season 9 without that element sure but but that element you know, I think it's probably if I'm honest and we're just speaking candidly to me, it's it's five steps forward and one step back, which is pretty great odds. Right. If, yeah. if Fool Us helps people appreciate magic and deepens their appreciation for the artistry behind magic, that is five major steps forward. Right. The fact that still to this day, every time I'm just coming off a cruise gig, which you know, is a great place to be trapped in an environment with your audience because then you know what they think about your show because three sure. days later, I've been thinking about something. Oh, God, here it comes. You know, but you <laughs> learn a heck of a lot when somebody is stewing over your magic for three days later and then they can talk to you about it. But when anybody finds out in my bio that I went on Fool Us, I fooled Penny, you know, their first question is, did you fool them? And I mean, that, like it or not, unfortunately, the format is such that to a layman, you are judged. Judged is the right word. You are judged in their unknowing eyes by whether you fooled them or you didn't. And I wish that we were in a place where you could say, well, I didn't fool them, but I, I think it was a great performance and I think it showed my personality and I got some very nice compliments. That doesn't really square with with the short 
elevator answer of what they're looking for. But yeah. It is yeah. What it is. That is it. That's the definite answer. It is what it is. And uh, within the confines of it is what it is, we try to make it as good as we can. Um, so <laughs> one of the chapters uh, and you know, it's funny because uh, if you talk about careers without respect, I've managed to do both of them, uh, you know, making my living either from music or magic. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I like the quote that you say, you know, you say, I'm a magician. I say with no small measure of pride when people ask what I do. This is usually followed by, do you do anything else? And yeah. I mean, you know, this is, this is, of course, I'm a magician. Really? What instrument do you play? Well, I play the piano, but that doesn't really answer your question. Right. Directly. So, and, and this uh. I think is, is another part of, because it's an, an orthodox way to make a living. Um, people just don't understand how somebody can do that, but it, it all goes back to the lack of being able to see extraordinary talent do magic in the way it's supposed to. The the good news here, and I, I am imagining, but I don't want to speak for you, that you're basing a lot of where you're coming from on your life experience, which was in Vegas and before that in Indianapolis and, and so on. I think the good news here is that part of the equation is changing. I think that in the so-called gig economy of, of the 21st century, where it's not just possible to be self-employed, but really looked up to people who work for themselves and do something for themselves. That's really kind of where it's at now. I think that I don't feel, I guess what I'm saying is my frustration is not with people who look down on magic generally, but the frustration with people who don't know enough about it to appreciate it. And the example of this is like, look, when you do cruise magic, like I just got off, you are spending a lot of time with your audience and that's really where the book came from is I used to have to do these dinners, sit at the round table with eight strangers, and I would get the same questions. And they weren't bad questions, by the way. They weren't all insulting questions. They were really smart questions, questions like, what do you do if you mess up on stage? So do you create the tricks that you perform? So who would you say is the best magician out there right now? And these are these are questions that we all have silly, funny answers to when we're in a hurry, but if you get the opportunity and you can actually write 6,000 words on each of these questions, you can really educate somebody and tell some really wonderful yeah. stories about things. And that's what I did. So I never felt like I was having to prove to people that magic was worthwhile. I just felt that I had to tell them how it was worthwhile. If yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, and uh, partly, I suppose the problem is, and it, it all goes back to the fact, although this is, this is certainly something that's changing as well. But if we go back pre YouTube days, then the opportunity, and I think you mentioned this in the book, um, the opportunity for someone to have seen a magician is really small. I mean, and it's probably is still this way. The opportunity to see someone perform magic live, I will add in there, is still really small, uh, which is why in one of the workers' books, I say that, you know, when you do magic for someone live, you basically represent all of magic. And yeah. whatever impression you leave when you work for these people is going to carry on to the next guy who, uh, you know, and I, I've actually apologized to people for all the magicians they've seen before me, you know, oh God. Oh, you know, I don't like yeah. that really. Well, I apologize for that, but maybe I can change your mind here. Right. Yeah. 
I was thinking about the weird two sides of the coin of, of just this topic. And again, you know, it's, I think I'm hypersensitive to all my, my uh, emotions performing again because I wasn't doing it for two years. And then I go on a boat and do 17 shows in, in 12 days. And it's like, you know, it's kind of a, a crazy feeling. But I realized two things. On the one hand, on the positive side, because magic is such a rare performing art, you're right. Most people have not seen very many magicians, and it's such an arresting thing to see when you're right in front of it. And if you do a good job, you are just fill the room with people coming up after you and saying wonderfully nice things. You're my favorite. That's the best magic show I've ever seen. I've never seen anybody do anything like that. That last thing you did, that is the great. And the danger of that, because I have to know they're very kind, they're very appreciative. But they don't mean what they're saying because they haven't seen enough magic to really know that. They've just seen it, and I happen to be lucky enough to be the guy that, that gives them the live experience. But magic itself is is such that they're going to say that. I know they will say it to the next guy who's in that room and the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. They will all get that too. So we shouldn't get our egos too puffed up. But here's the interesting part. On the other hand, I think that magic is unique in that whoever gets there first gets to make the mold. In other words, if you remember in the, the mid to late 90s, it didn't matter what any of us did. We were all second to David Blaine. Because he got there first. He got into everybody's home and he did very competent but standard magic things. But he did them in a way that he, no matter what you did, they were going to ask you about biting a coin off and spitting it back on, levitating off the ground, throwing cards through a window. You know, the three or four things they talked about, right? He got there right. first, so to speak. And similarly, when you're on a ship trapped with your audience, you get a lot of people coming up and being like, that was a really good show. I once saw a magician... And the, the bill ended up inside a lemon. I mean, do you, can you even imagine? Have you heard of this before? And you know, you're nodding because nothing I do, it doesn't matter if I create the magic of the Bible. They are still imprinted with whatever it is that they saw first by whoever got there first. So there's these two interesting sides of the coin, right? On the one hand, you can never replace somebody's first. Yeah. Right. And yep. on the other hand, Nobody will ever be able to top what you did just then and just there. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I was uh, in Vegas and working the Houdini Lounge, this is about the time that a lot of the David Blaine specials were showing up. And I was really, uh, and this is a question I don't think you, you address in your book. The question is, how do you answer the question, I saw David Blaine throw a card through a window? Or reach, or with, uh, who was it, Dynamo, who reached through? No, it was Blaine who reached Blaine, through a yeah. window. Yeah. Can you do that? Can you do that trick? Now, that puts you at an ethical crossroads here, because in no way, shape, or form am I going to explain how anybody else's trick works, but I'm also not going to put myself down simply because I don't have a crew of backstage yeah. people and a fake window and good camera editing that I can use. So my answer to that always was, you know, I don't do that trick. But the next time you see David Blaine, ask him if he can do what I'm about to do for you. Yeah, funny. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah, that was yeah. the way I got out of it, you know, it just, just so it didn't leave it confrontational. 
It's so interesting you say that because I actually wrote that. I mean, it, it, truly, I mean, we as magicians, we know all the questions we're asked, and that was one, and that was one that ended up being cut. But I hope I can encourage the listeners of this to go on the Vanishing Ink blog because that chapter uh, became a blog entry because it didn't ah. make the book. And there's something else in there. So I, I talk about what I say and how I treat it when somebody goes, you ever seen David Copperfield? What do you think of this uh, Chris Angel guy? You know, whatever you, you're going to say to those. But the other one, the much more challenging one, is what do you say? Because I think the chapter was called What Do You Say, right? So it's, yeah. it tackles it in two parts. First, what do you say when somebody says, what do you think of David Blaine? What do you think? Of, because, and I think that correctly, my editing team was like, that's very inside baseball. I don't think a layman needs to know what you say. Right. To, and then the other one, which is so instructive to magicians, is what do you say to people who say really bad jokes you know so you're gonna make me disappear so are you gonna try and make a hundred books disappear at this book interview you know whatever it is right how do you how do you approach that and you know i never had a good one you know hey before we go can you make 50 pounds disappear you know i never knew what to say because i'm not a, a comedic performer and i don't really want to like alter what i'm doing yeah sure you need that so you know i don't yeah i don't want to go there it's just it's not a place i don't want to encourage other people to make Stupid jokes like that. And then the answer came to me. So instructive via Tom Hanks. And this is the lesson Tom Hanks can teach all of us about what to do when somebody tries to take you out of their rhythm. And not always to be an asshole. I mean, they they might be just doing it because they think they're the first one to ever say it. And then they realize five seconds later, like, oh, I bet he gets this a hundred times a day. I watched Tom Hanks get interviewed for whatever movie he was making the rounds for. And some interviewer said, you know, amidst all the, you know, what was you, what were you thinking when you got into the mind of this character? Was it hard to be in Berlin for all those days? And then they said, if you could be any Disney character, which one would you be? Which is a completely insultingly stupid thing to ask Tom Hanks. And I thought, oh, this is good. What's he going to do now? Because Tom Hanks is not just a famous actor, not just a big celebrity. But he's Tom. Hey, he's Uncle Tom, right? Like he's he's everybody's most lovable, favorite, nice guy. Yeah, it was brilliant. This is what he did. He went like this. <sighs> Boy, um, I guess I'd have to say. And then he answered the question, and it was so brilliant. He totally changed the dynamic and got control again by pausing so long that every person listening knew what a stupid freaking question it was to ask him. So without him having to go, you know, I'm a serious actor and you're asking me a stupid effing question. So instead, he said he let the pausing completely shine a light on what a stupid ass question it was. And then as soon as it was dis it had dissipated, he got to be lovable Tom Hanks and he tried to answer it anyway. And it was the quickest little answer and it was on to more serious, artful answer. Oh, and I just thought every great. time, every time somebody goes, Hey, you want to make my bills disappear? I don't make bills disappear, actually. That's a yeah. good suggestion. And then, then, then you just see how unfunny yeah. and stupid the question is, you know? So here's another question I have about a thing in the book. And this, I think, well, the magicians might find interesting because you say something I found um, 
you were talking about the fact that you, uh, you're a better judge of what tricks won't work now than you were 20 years ago. And um, you say, I know now that the more memorization required for a magic effect, the greater the chance of failure. So uh, I'm glad Simon Aronson never had a chance to hear you make that confession. So I, I want to know, uh, you, there are some beautiful effects that I won't perform because I know trying to remember a hundred potential outcomes will eventually result in my failing on stage. I want to know what trick it is you're thinking of. Oh, I, I was oh, just I, thinking about this the other day, and I'm, I'm not afraid to point it out because, you know, I'll, I'll make it clear that I'm not making a comment on the performer. So I was um, re-watching a product that we put out by Dennis Bear on tap, Magic on Tap. Mm -hmm. Dennis, Dennis is extraordinary. Yep. And he's explaining a gambling trick, a really, a really fine gambling trick. All of his magic is really thoughtful and clever. And I'm not kidding you. There are so many steps and discrepancies and like, now, in the second round, you don't start on yourself. You start on the spectator. But if they say hearts, you're going to deal backwards. And if they say spades, you deal around this way. And then always remember to cut two cards. But if they said the third hand, you cut six cards. And I have no comment or question or really concern whether Dennis can or can't do that. But I can tell you for certain that <laughs> 99 out of 100 magicians ought not try it because it will fail. And... It's like um, I'm a Twainiac, you know, I'm a Mark Twain junkie. I love Mark Twain. He's my favorite author. And, you know, he learned the great business lesson of his life that caused him to have to stay on the road in his uh, twilight years and, and financial ruin because he invested over and over all his fortune into a new kind of printing press. And it had 18,000 moving parts. And he said this far more eloquently than I can, but he think he said something like, you know, the lesson I learned after two family fortunes lost is the more moving parts to an equation, the more chance for failure. Yeah. And that's just true. And I'm not talking about making our methods linear. I, I, I don't think color changing knives is a great trick because it's too linear. You know, I think if you're not doing multiple things to disguise a method that you always risk somebody going, I don't know, but I think the other side of that knife is white. Yeah. But, but what I mean by that is I just think that there's an elegance to methods. And part of that elegance has to be that it's doable, that it's performable. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of that of course is geared to, um, to the person who's doing the performing. There are some people for whom being aware of all those possibilities and all those contingencies and all those things that have to be done wouldn't be a problem at all. And then there's others of us that, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be a mess. So it's that, you know, it's that funny thing of like, you're right. Your your point is that it's, it's personal, right? I mean, Dennis exactly. is capable of, of what many of us are not. But I would say to you, I think there's also probably an objective line that should not be crossed. And I'll give you a great example. I would say to you, if you asked me to rate Simon Aronson's best five tricks that he created in his entire life across all of his books, you would be crazy not to put twice as hard in as one of them. Twice as hard, for anybody who doesn't know, is um, a double any card at any number. You cut to a card... You cut to a card, you look at the cards, you put them back, you name a number, you name a number, 
And then very shortly after that, he hands you the deck. You count to your number and get your card. You count to your number and get your card. I would say to you, objectively, there is no possible way anybody knows how that trick's done. Like, somebody should go on Fool Us and do twice as hard because there's just simply no way any person, magician or layman, is going to understand the principle that's going on there. Right. However, (laughs) I have tried... I have watched Simon Aronson over ever since he developed it. His success rate was only about 50%. It's just not a trick that is practical enough to be used. You can't stay sharp with that trick, truly, even if you're doing it every day, because depending on what card this person cuts to is what number range you give this person, and then depending on what you subtract from this number, you might have to do different computations. It's just, it's unfortunately a major limitation of the trick. Now, I hope somebody proves me totally wrong and says, I'm going to do twice as hard for you all night long and I'll never fail once. But, yeah. you know. Um, my favorite Aronson trick of that nature, and I think I might have explained this someplace in print, but he had a trick and it was really amazing. Somebody would name a card. Somebody else would name a number. You would deal off that number of cards give that pile a down and under deal. And the card that remains is the named one. Uh, What there was, was a formula to memorize deck trick where in the, but you have to do this formula, the form, you have to input the number, the stack number of the card, plus the number that they want of the number of cards they want to use. And you put it into this calculation and the calculation tells you what card has to be cut to the bottom of the deck for everything to work out. No way, right? Here's what I did. This was back in the day when I used to wear a calculator watch. But Uh, nowadays, you could do it on your phone. Your phone, yeah, sure. You could do it on your phone. And I'd say, you want that card? You want this number? Let's calculate the odds of this working out. And you just did it right in front of them. And I did it right in front of them. But but I had a gag. I said, okay, the odds are 50-50. And they go, what? And I go, well, it either works or it doesn't. You know, who knows? You got to go through it. Yeah, but anyway, that's that's the way I got around that. Cute. Let's move on to something else. You say something interesting about children, and I have a slightly different take on um, – we, we have the same opinion. We just have a different reason why. Um, the, the question that's asked in this particular chapter is, who is the most difficult audience to work for? And your answer, I believe correctly, is children. But the reason you give is uh, a, f- a five-year-old's imagination is boundless. And for magicians, that's dangerous. So you want to talk about that answer a little bit? And then I'll tell you what my thought is yeah, on that I'm, subject. I'm eager, to, I'm eager to hear. I mean, that's that's an example. You know, you, you cherry-picked an example there where that is perhaps – there's a few places in the book, and I'm a, I feel a bit guilty about it, but there are things I don't want to discuss with the public. And one of the great talking points when you're talking as a magician to the public is that one. Do I really feel like children are the hardest audience to fool or is it a group of, you know, neuroscientists? Well, I mean, we can have that debate, but for, for purposes of the book, it's children. And yeah, I would say to you that my reasons for that are, are apparent in that wonderful book by Silly Billy. You know, he sort of said, if you're a magician, the objective is magic per minute, right? Not that you're trying to pack tricks in, but it's 
it's the miracle level stuff that you can pack in your show. What did you do? It's trick to trick to trick. With kids, that's not what it is. With kids, it's laughs per minute. It's interactions per minute. It's not about what you do. It's how you got there. It's the silliness along the way and the mm. byplay. Yeah. And it's hard to, you know, it's the old thing. It's, it's hard to put across something as amazing to a five-year-old when flicking a light and lights go on is amazing to a five-year-old. Putting cold food in a microwave and hitting some buttons and it comes out warm is amazing to a five-year-old. Combustible engine, you know, the combustion engine is, is amazing to a five-year-old, you know. That's sort of where I come from on that. But I'm eager to hear what. what well, you... my take on it is and, and uh, is simply that magic is based on assumption. And when you work for adults, adults have developed the process of if they see this, then they assume that if they mm -hmm. see this, then they assume that. But very young children haven't learned that yet. So there is no they need to. To convince them of anything, if you're really trying to fool them, they need to put their hands on it. They need to see it. They need to look at it. It isn't enough to tell the box over and show it's empty. Yeah. Because they, they don't, they won't make that assumption. They won't go that far. So I mean, it's, it's why, uh, hippity hop rabbits works because there's no other assumption other than the one that those two rabbits have different colored rabbit, you know, black yeah. one on a white on a white on a black. But uh, I was interested in, uh, in why you, uh, and, and certainly, uh, you know, that, and you're certainly correct about uh, David Kay with his expertise with children. I mean, it's all, it's much more about the experience and the fun than it is yeah. you about know, the magic. On that same topic, but in a, a different way, I was thinking the last few days. So, so follow me on this. So, I added a fairly new piece into my act on the ship. <clears throat> and it's something I had done before, but I'd never done it in the context of my parlor show. And I realized, and it wasn't hitting the way I wanted it to hit when I put it as opener and I put it as third. And then changing nothing else, I put it kind of penultimate, like right before the last thing. And all of a sudden it was like, there, that's where it works. That's how I remember this reaction being. It's so much better. And here's what I think happened. It's a ring on wine glass. And the wine glass, the borrowed ring goes in the wine glass. But the wine glass is like kind of examinable, but not totally examinable. You can hold it. You can shake it. You can verify it's your ring. But I can't like leave you because you could break it or pull it apart. You know, it's not, it's not totally examinable but it's examinable enough mm -hmm. <clears throat> this used to kill when i did it and it just wasn't hitting hard until it went there and i realized i think why and this is such an underexplored area of magic and i think i, I mean i just want to dive into why this is and integrate it in other ways there's a proving period in a magic show it's almost like a test to people and if you pass that test Oh. They tend to make a lot more assumptions in a good way. And if you fail that test, they're not going to give you any room. So what I mean by that is very early in my show, a borrowed objects ends up in an M&M's package. And that M&M's package is airtight. I mean, it's in their hands. They shake it. They hear it. They can look at it. And I can say that is a sealed package of M&M's. Can you hold that up? There's no slits. It's not been opened or tampered with. I mean, that is factory sealed. Is that right? Shake it next year. Do you hear something inside? What do you hear? What do you feel? Would you tear it open? I don't want to touch it. Take it out. So that obviously has been done with a load, right? It comes out. It goes there and it's done. 
That's a proof. Uh, that takes proof. And I think I passed that test. Then a few minutes later, an object sealed in an envelope that reads a prediction and so on and so on. Again, you open the envelope. And by the way, that came out and you opened it, right? Is that right? And would you read that? And that's not handwritten. That is printed on that envelope. Would you read what that printing says? And again, it's a test and I pass. Yeah. So now, late in the show, when I say, pull that handkerchief off, is that your ring linked onto that wine glass? And I mean, seriously, give it a pull. That's really on there, right? And now I take it from him kind of before he does anything and can walk around the first row. Hold on to it, ma'am. Shake that. Is that ring really on there? You would know. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And it's kind of like integrating it, separating a method out by proving throughout a show, you know? Well, what you're doing is you establish conviction that the things that you do are examinable. And they're trained. They go, you know, they look at the M&M package, nothing to find. They look at the envelope, nothing to find. Well, I can see it's a wine glass. It's got a ring on it. What the hell would I find if I did anything with it? I couldn't find anything. And the other thing that's smart there is he wouldn't have given it to me if I couldn't examine it. I think that's the other training yeah. that you're doing there. If I hand this to you, you can check it out. But by the time it gets to the third thing, there's nothing for them to figure out. You're, think about. I think you're exactly right. And I'll give you another example, but I'll be careful to keep it a little vague because it's not my trick in this. But I think this is brilliant, and this is why I was fooled by this. And and listen, from, from that story and in this one, I think we can all learn something because we tend to think, and you wrote about this in your assumptions essay, which I love so much, that for a layman, a magic trick starts and stops with when you say, and now let's do this trick, right? And and to some degree, there's been some progress in, in the ensuing de- couple decades of magicians working outside the realm of, of the timeline of a trick. But this is even, this is a meta step, of, you know, beyond that, because what we're talking about is, are there psychological things? Like that ring on wine glass has nothing to do with those earlier tricks, but it's very placement in the show is impacted by what comes before it. So here's the best one, the very best one I can think of. Early in the Penn and Teller show, I think like before it starts, they show they used to show a video where a cow was walking backstage. Oh, yeah. The, and the, then, pygmy, the pygmy elephant. The pygmy elephant. They would have a cow. And then they would later in the show, they would come back to, with Penn on the farm with the cow, petting the cow, talking about this upcoming vanish. And then finally, as a third thing, the curtains part, and there's this cow disguised as an elephant, and it vanishes, surrounded by people. And the first time I saw it, I have no shame, and I have delight in saying I was floored, totally and completely fooled. And I am convinced that the reason I was fooled is not because of anything around the method, which is a good method and a solid method, but because I was convinced that that cow was a cow by the video of cows. Right. And that's such a weird way to prove. And it's proof over time. It's habituation. They get me used to seeing a cow. So you don't ask anything when you see that, you know, right then right. And there. There's an interesting aspect because I worked on that trick. That's how long that trick was in development that I worked on it when I was still in Vegas. But Penn describes that trick as the little lie that hides the big lie. Yeah, that's great. And that's and that's exactly right. I mean, the whole thing that they've got a cow dressed up as an elephant is 
And all he says is he's going to vanish the elephant. They're going to vanish the elephant. They're going to vanish the elephant. Yeah. That the cow becomes, you know, second nature. Here's what I think is, is magnificent about this book. Um, first of all, magicians need not worry because there is nothing exposed that's going to harm anybody, anybody. And I, I should say with, you know, for full disclosure that I read earlier versions of this book and offered comments to you and, and, um, criticisms of some things I thought, you know, really shouldn't be in the book. And, but I'm delighted with the way it is now. Okay. And, um, what I'm delighted about is that it gives all magicians a source, something when people ask questions and ask about things, you can go, you know, friend of mine wrote a really good book about this that explains lots of things and lots of the what magic is really about to the people who do it well, that if you're really interested in it, you'll learn a lot about how magicians, um, you know, practice their craft. Well, yeah, I mean, and that was, you know, well, that wasn't maybe the impetus. That was the opportunity, right? Because people, you know, I wrote this book called Magic, the Complete Course in 2008. And that book, you know, I'm I'm lucky and, and proud to say sold really well. I mean, well over 100,000 copies in six languages. And it's a how-to guide. It's a beginner's guide to magic. It kind of became the next Mark Wilson's course in the sense that it was the one on bookshelves for now 15 years. Yeah. And what was always odd to me about that process was that people would say, oh, my brother-in-law Jeff loves magic, so I got him your book. And I would think, well, just because he loves like going to Vegas and seeing magic and watching it on TV, why does that automatically make him a candidate to learn sleight of hand? Like that's a weird fit to me. It's it's not a great fit. And there were little like little parts on magic history and facts and stuff, but it's not the book you buy a magic fan, right? A right. magic fan. And I asked myself, what do you buy a magic fan? And the only book that is somewhat analogous to that is the fantastic Hiding the Elephant by Jim Steinmeier. Right. But here again, I love that book. And for many years, that was the book. If I, if I met somebody in my life that just really loved magic, but not in the sense that they were like, Hey, Josh, how do I become a performer? Just love magic. I would get them that book, but that book is entirely focused on magic history. That is a book about the great magicians of the past and, the, and their inventions, which is wonderful. I, I absolutely adore that book. But what do we get people who are fascinated by magic generally? And I hope that this can become that book, you know, but we, we will see. Yeah. Um, toward the end of the book, um, you say some things about uh, your three wishes mm. about, about magic. And the first is, uh, that, uh, that perhaps the next great magician that becomes, uh, how do you say it? Uh, my first wish is that the next great magician will be a woman, ideally a woman of color. And one of the things that we're really happy about, about Fool Us, since it began, is the number of female magicians who are coming on the show and doing extraordinary work on the show. I mean, and, and, you know, and fooling me. I mean, uh, uh, Danny, uh, it's uh, Dania Dortiz. Uh, that's the wrong name, but it was the gal who was on a couple seasons ago with the heart shaped box. Yeah. With the cords that. going yeah. through it. That was a trick I had never seen before. 
completely fooled me. And she's delightful and, and wonderful and charming. And we've, we've got, uh, probably a dozen women make up the, uh, almost a quarter of them make up the, the people for this next season. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it, look, we are all going through a major societal shift and it's one for the better. And there's growing pains in that. And, you know, you can look at the issue one of two ways. You can look at it with disgust at how, Magicians have treated the female community and, and people of color and, and all sorts of inequalities within the magic community that we've all got to be part of fixing. Or you can look at it with the glass half full and go, I think there's been more progress in the last 10 years than in the previous 70. I mean, we run a youth program at Magi Fest where any, any young magician can attend for free. They apply for a scholarship and they essentially get it for them and their parent. And it's about a third female, which is fantastic. You know, that didn't happen when we started. The second wish, and um, and this is the one that we all wish, is that you, the public, will come to view magic as you view comedy or music or slam poetry and uh, judge each artist on his or her own merits. And this is the whole thing I wrote about in the workers' book long ago. No one hears a bad song and then says, I hate all music. But all it takes is one bad magician, and a corporation will never hire a magician ever again. So the understanding that when you perform, you represent all of magic. And it's 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 a responsibility. And And I mean, yes, that is the immediate part. But it comes back to my core value in writing this book to deepen people's appreciation for magic and magicians. I want people to obtain, lay people, to attain a level of magic fluency. You know, you and I don't work in the movie industry. Neither of us have ever made a film or acted in a film. But um, we can have really deep conversations about cinematography and what makes a film great and whether an acting performance was pushed or, or, or natural. Lay people can't do that for magic. Yep. And I, I want this book to be a part of changing that. I think we all want that change. And Fool Us does a lot for that. Uh, and the third thing is, is that magicians, your hope is that magicians will become braver in the things that they do. Um, and, you know, I think uh, a big portion of that is the guys, uh, you know, your own show. Uh, and I can't imagine how you decided that we're going to have an audience of 20 people every night. And this is guaranteed to lose money no matter what we do. Um, Terrible but, business decision, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but to use uh, Derek Delgadio's show as an example, I mean, what made that such a terrific show? And it was it was an emotional thing, even on TV, watching the the film version, an emotional thing because of the risks he took, and you know where the message came first, and the magic was the. The, the other part of it, but, to, but delivering this, you know, intellectual and emotional content. The challenge, of course, is that there are fewer, there are not many places where someone who has something to say can have the ability to find a venue and an audience. It's, it's really difficult. Although it is gratifying, there's more magic places around the country now. So maybe that will begin to change in time. I, th I hope so. I think so. And and you're right. You know, and it doesn't always just we don't have to pigeonhole it into just a theatrical setting. You know, I want to see magicians getting bolder and braver with their methods, with their effects, with 
how they use their time, with how they structure their careers. I think there is so much potential. There is no question in my mind we are in the midst of our own magic renaissance, and it's mostly given rocket fuel by the Internet. But, you know, magicians now have an audience through this screen that is limitless, and what are they going to do with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a terrific book, and uh, it only took you four years, and uh, you're about to go out on how many cities are you going to hit on this? Thirty four cities. It's if if I survive, I'll be impressed. But I'm um, I'm actually really excited. I was telling you this before we started. You know, I think I even allude to it in the book itself in a, a very meta moment. But when I went on tour for Magic: The Complete Course, I remember. There was this one event, and this is emblematic of all the events I did to publicize that book, where they had uh, an Iraqi war vet who w- wrote his memoir. They had a, uh, an oncologist writing about cancer and life and, and coping with death, and they had me. And I remember they, they put me on this panel. I like just came right from the airport. I get here. We're all signing books, and then we do the event. And this was in Toronto. Funny enough, this was in really? Toronto. Chapters headquarters or chapters yeah. books. And they said, okay, um, we're going to have the, whatever the guy's name was, the Iraqi war vet is going to read a poem about his experience there and then take some questions on what it was like to be in combat. We're going to have so-and-so talk about uh, mortality and cancer and ways <laughs> that we can affect our loved ones. And then the magician will be judging the pumpkin carving contest in the back. <laughs> I just remember being like, well, you know what? This is, this is writing me off before I even got to say the first word. I get to judge the effing pumpkin carving contest, you know, because that's our station. That's where we fit in. Like, you know, person writing a serious memoir here, person writing about cancer here, magic way, way down with the kids in the back judging the pumpkin carving contest. Yeah. But well, the great. The great joy of, of doing press. I just started today. You're the third interview today. And it's really fun because when you write a book with heft to it, people tend to approach the subject in a serious way. And I don't know if that's an indication that the book is working or they're just being polite to read it, but I'm loving these conversations and I'm hoping right. they're going to do some good. So we'll see. Well, the, the good news for those who are going to interview is there's an, a lot of stuff to talk about in this book. I mean, every chapter springs off more questions to somebody who, so as long as the, uh, the talking heads who are interviewing, you have good producers who can feed them good questions. Uh, maybe you'll have a little more fun on this one. It won't be quite so grueling. Josh J. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours. And you always, uh, make me proud of you, my friend. Oh, um, thank you. It means a lot. It's, um, it, we've just, uh, we've been through a lot of stuff together, so it's been great been great please be well be safe uh wear a mask if you can (laughs) and uh i'll talk to you down the road thanks for joining me today i really appreciate it thanks everybody this has been another conversation with close thanks for listening if you enjoyed the podcast please be sure to tell your friends like us on facebook at michael close magic follow us on twitter at mike close magic and visit our website michaelclose.com If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash Michael Close. In that way, we can continue to bring you high-quality content. Until next time, so long from the Great White North.